Hello and welcome back to Ed Voices. My name is Mark Candela. Today we'll explore the relatively under-researched phenomenon of education privatization in the Caribbean region. We'll discuss the findings of a recent research commissioned by Education International, Time to Turn the Tide, Privatization Trends in Education in the Caribbean. Joining us is one of the authors of the report, Rinelle Lee Pigot. Rinelle is a lecturer in educational administration at the School of Education of the University of the West Indies in Trinidad and Tobago. Also joining us is Andrew King, Director of Public Affairs at the Canadian Teachers Federation, who will be your host for this episode. Let's get some deeper insights from them. Over to you, Andrew. Thanks very much, Mar. Renel, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we have a great conversation, uh, really looking back at uh, Time to Turn the Tide from your work published in February, looking at privatization in the Caribbean. So, so welcome. Thank you so very much, Andrew. It's really a pleasure to be here. So as you all know, the Canadian Teachers Federation had a lot of involvement in supporting uh, that research. And just wondering off the top, you know, it's something that's mentioned in that work that there hadn't been a great deal of research looking at privatization up until this report. Uh, what, what do you think, what, what took so long for that, to, for that to happen? I think um, one is an understanding that um, seems to pervade the Caribbean that okay, that privatization is something that does not exist. It's, it's, we're just unaware of it. But at the same time, you know, we, we see evidences of what might appear to be privatization, but we don't connect that that is privatization. So for instance, um, public schools and public school teachers um, having private lessons for students, you know, after school, during the vacation, you know, and students must pay for these particular private lessons from many times their own classroom teachers within public schooling, yeah? But we don't connect to those dots and say that this is privatization, yeah? So um, that's one element. Um, another element is the, the understanding that um, the Caribbean has of um, education being of a public good one that should be provided by the state. And therefore our focus is on public education and not necessarily public education becoming privatized. You talk a lot about in the report how the region has favorable conditions for privatization to enter. And you just mentioned a couple of different examples that are very different, but uh, these, these favorable conditions really come down to a lack of support from the state in many instances. Can you talk about that a bit? Like you talk about the public education is supposedly valued, but when you take a look at the actual support from governments, that's not necessarily the case. Okay. Um, I think there are two ways that you can look at that. You may think that, okay, it, it's, it's true that um, not enough funding is being provided um, to the public education system in order to provide the kind of quality education that we see you know, as examples within private settings or within um, more advantageous um, contexts internationally, you know, um, first world countries, for instance. Um, so that might be one angle, but then there is the other side of that argument in that, um, 
many, if not all, of the Caribbean states, Caribbean nations, uh, their, their GDP is quite low in comparison to um, first world countries, so many other countries within the world, yeah? And so much of what they have in the first place in order to, you know, to share out across um, all the needs of a nation, um, it's just not enough, yeah? It's not a lot. And so what is provided for education can only stretch so far, yeah? And so that is another angle. And therefore, privatization of public education becomes now an attractive alternative in that private sector can now infuse the kinds of monies that maybe the governments of these, these states are unable to provide to um, increase the quality of the education that is provided. You talk also about the influence of the International Monetary Fund and that pressure to, so to speak, modernize public education, which really does open the, the floodgates to privatization. How much, uh, how big of a factor is the IMF in determining how countries in the Caribbean approach public education in, in wanting to have that financial support and what they have to do in order to get it? How, how does that, how much does the IMF really play a role in this? Um, now, our findings really didn't um, share so much on the extent to which these, these actors like supranational organizations um, um, operate in terms of being a key driver um, towards privatization. We just only got snippets of those. And so we can't generalize these findings across the Caribbean because we don't have the sufficient evidence, right? But the, the snippet that we've seen is that it, it seems to play a huge role in that. Just as I've said, um, uh, the, the Caribbean nation states uh, are ripe for privatization because of the conditions that exist, because of um, insufficient funding or um, funding that is not distributed in probably an equitable enough way for education to thrive. But um, when we approach um, the IMF, for instance, countries in Caribbean approach the IMF, there are terms for the use of their funds, yeah? And so these terms, <clears throat> excuse me, these terms may mean that um, we are asked to, for instance, reduce the, the, the funding in, let's say, one particular sector, let's say tertiary, um, not provide um, funding in, in certain other areas, but we have to, in order to get those funds, abide by those terms, yeah? And many times those terms resemble privatization of public education, you see? It's what you found with, you know, for an example, the IMF is sort of just scratching the surface, but what you have found, does it concern you that that does uh, perhaps affect the entire region? I know Barbados was one concrete example with the IMF when it came to restructuring, but if, if, if that scene is a successful intervention, uh, do you worry that you could see that spread throughout the region even more? Um, because, you know, as a researcher, we rely on evidence. I would want to see that evidence um, in a more generalized sense before I can say yes to that. I think that is... Um, erring on the side of caution. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to say that I, I, I would worry. I, I don't want to say that just yet, yeah? Um, because it's just one example, one particular um, intervention by the IMF. And, and, you know, as we see in the Caribbean that um, 
these kinds of interventions kind of equate or uh, synonymize, these privatization efforts are synonymized with modernization of um, the education system. Uh, and so it, it's something that we'd have to wait a little longer to see what's going on before we make um, a determination, I think. Because there are some benefits to privatization, particularly for the Caribbean, just because as I said, um, funding and so on. Um, but we would also still need to, to have some caution you know, because we wouldn't want it to, to reach to the point of we have our public um, school systems becoming residualized and we don't want our schools to become so much to the extent that it's, it's more homogenized in that certain types of children are going to particular types of schools and, and um, benefiting from high quality education in which this, this education is now a commodity. And so certain groups who cannot afford are now um, relegated to school systems in which they cannot benefit, right? So um, as we wait and see a little bit, um, hopefully that would not be the case spreading across the Caribbean, um, but I think we, we really need to wait for that evidence. And therefore I am encouraging more research, <laughs> uh, particularly in identifying who are the key players in promoting privatization across the Caribbean. I would think, segue perfectly to my next question, because you outlined three different areas and way that privatization is creeping in. And the first one was private actors. The second was the state adopting the language and methods of privatization. And the third being that the state is privatized completely. Uh, which one of those worries you the most at this point is most uh, pervasive? When you look at the private actors, like you see more research needs to be done to look at that. One big example you used was a, a religious a Catholic mission uh, school system going in and, and playing off those, those, uh, those gaps in the system. Now, that was just one example. Do you have a feeling or not should say a feeling, but have you seen with needing more research to back it up, more examples of that that you see private actors identifying those opportunities and ready to jump in. Did you see that? Um, we are seeing some evidence of that, but particularly in the tertiary sector. And so we have um, institutions, universities coming across into the Caribbean um, and really, I think, benefiting from the, um, the limited opportunities for state provided um, tertiary education within the Caribbean. And so they come in and so many of our students, you know, would gravitate to um, getting their degrees from these private universities from elsewhere, right? So um, that's one area. Um, to talk about what is most concerning, I think it would probably be that um, private entities from, um, international organizations now finding that Trinidad and Tobago or, or Barbados or St. Lucia, the Caribbean, is now a place where they can benefit um, in, in producing, in, sorry, in supplying or, or supplementing public education. I think that is one of the areas. Now, what we've seen, uh, at least in terms of the research findings, is that um, there are more of these small scale um, yes, religious um, entities coming in and, and um, providing um, education, public education at a cost, but it's still very small scale. So 
what we, we don't have evidence of just yet, uh, because again, people are just largely unaware or have not connected the dots to say this is privatization of public education. What we, we've, we don't have evidence of is these, these larger organizations coming in and doing this kind of work. We, we know about it, the um, tertiary level education. We are not sure about secondary school education yet, and certainly primary and ECCE. Um, and, and ECCE may be the, the area that they may target because that is one of the areas across the Caribbean that is still very much provided by private entities. Yeah, um, many times small, very small scale, you know, like they, they, they neighbor down the road kind of um, thing. You mentioned in the report as well that so much of this is driven by a desire of the state and I'm sure of many people uh, to pursue competitive jobs, to pursue careers. And the idea that letting into private actors would help aid in creating well-paid uh, competitive job market. Have you seen that bear any fruit so far? Is there any evidence that that is actually working as, as you see the, the, the objective being laid out? Um, if there's evidence of that working, if there's probably speculation of that working rather than hardcore evidence of that working. So um, I would have to say um, that would be one I wouldn't want to, to really expound on, you know, because I feel that um, there just isn't su sufficient evidence to, to really touch on that one. Yeah. But another area that deserves more attention, I'm, I'm sure, to look into further to see Certainly. if Certainly. there's a correlation. Certainly. Just to switch gears here a little bit, how much do parents uh, influence this looking for that choice? And we've seen that in privatization around the world, that the offer of choice. And I know you've taken a look at that in this report as well, that um, parents are looking for the best options for their children. And how much does that play a role in, in, these, in this occurring throughout the region? A huge role, a huge role. Um, for instance, in Trinidad and Tobago, um, parental choice for schooling is, is actually written within our constitution. And so um, parents know they have a choice to choose which schools they prefer for their children, yeah? Um, and the fact that we have, you know, the publication of what, you know, in England and so on would be called considered league tables, um, which are the, the high, most high performing schools, um, the children that have um, copped in, in within the top 100 in terms of their performance, these things serve as market information for parents. Yeah, at one point in time in Trinidad, we actually had um, the publishing of of these booklets that would, would show you all the various schools laid out in summary form, what they provide, how they perform in terms of, you know, in comparison to other um, institutions. And that was something that parents, you know, <laughs> were really into. They were very glad about this because then this provided um, concrete information for them in terms of selecting schools, yeah? Uh, and so that created an environment within, um, particularly in Trinidad and Tobago, I imagine across the Caribbean, environments of education as being this, this public market, you know, a marketplace for you to select, yeah? 
and um, particularly that 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 transition between primary school and secondary school, in which you know once you've chosen the best quote unquote primary school, and and um, we're seeing more and more that parents are choosing private primary schools because that's where they're, they're tending to think is um, quality education compared to public school public schooling. You would find that after they've selected their primary school, that guarantees somehow that their children would go to the best secondary schools, yeah, because there is a lot of variation within the quality of, um, between schools in terms of their, their provision of education, yeah. And so parents are using this information that is being provided publicly, um, I think for the first time in a long time, yeah, in Trinidad and Tobago, I can say first time this year, they have chosen not to publish um, the results of the, the, what we call a secondary entrance examination, that those results, the first time ever, not to publish it publicly. Um, and, and I think that's probably um, uh, a step in the right direction to help reduce that kind of um, competition, commodi commodifying of education and so on. Question about that, because you mentioned what's going on in Trinidad and Tobago and that it's baked into the, into the constitution about choice and about school choice. So who's driving this? Would you say it's the parents driving this? Or is it a combination of a government seeing what parents desire and exploiting that to move it in this direction? What's the more powerful force in, in that relationship? Of uh, Is it a system that, that needs more support? So parents are obviously looking for the best options, but a state that recognizes that is exactly what it can do to move this toward privatization. That is a really good question. I don't think we've sat down <laughs> and discussed that just yet. Um, probably we're having those conversations now because they are reviewing um, that secondary entrance assessment um, exam to, to, to see what needs to change. So maybe there's, they, they've begun that kind of conversation. But certainly parents are driving this thing. Um, there are parents who are, are now looking for um, what we would call parallel education system alongside public education system. So that parallel education system consists of not only homeschooling, but of course, choosing private schools um, rather than public schools, right? And this isn't to say that there aren't um, really good public schools about, but more and more parents are beginning to choose that direction. So, so parents are driving it in one sense, but then there is also the aspect of what teachers are doing and they are contributing to the to privatization, privatization of education being driven forward, promoting it in, in their own um, continuing to run private lessons. Yeah. And this is becoming a huge factor now because it's only those who can afford can actually access these additional private lessons. And those, they, it tends to be that those who have, you know, benefited from these additional private lessons and so on, they're the ones that are then now able to cop and secure the scholarships that are provided to students, I mean, available to students. And I mean, scholarships now for tertiary, tertiary level education. Um, and so it's a huge problem. So in essence, children who, who come from families, disadvantaged homes who cannot afford, are unable to, to access all these opportunities, yeah? 
this is driving an inequitable system, especially seeing that the teachers can benefit from offering those additional lessons. Does this really come back to systems that are just not well supported by the state, that teachers seek out that extra work because their compensation is not what it should be during the day when they're in school? When you say compensation, do you mean? Other salaries. Yeah, salaries. Yeah. So yes, that's one element. Um, sal- teachers' salaries um, may be considered comparatively low. Uh, and so we, we, you would often find that teachers' unions are often driving for, you know, the increase in salaries. And sometimes they, they, they position at which the salary is at um, when you compare it to others in a more comparable state. It's, it's, it's two or three years behind what teachers should be getting at the point in time, yeah? And so um, that might be the case, um, but then again, you know, we have to consider the larger context, the larger national context, the larger regional context of, um, you know, just low, low income, low, low revenue streams um, across the Caribbean in comparison to wealthier states, yeah? Question for you, in, in here in Canada, uh, we always seem to look south to the United States to see the trends that are developing that will end up affecting us in a few years. And just wondering, in the Caribbean region, do you see a lot of, let's say, copycatting or looking to each other to, oh, that, that's working, so we're going to adopt that in terms of privatization? Have you seen that sort of trickle effect? Now, I know that you have many different examples um, throughout the region, but do you see that at all? That the the copying, the looking to each other to see, oh, that works, so we're going to do that too. Um, have you seen that? Um, if we think about it in terms of like evidence based practices to 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 um, train our teachers and those kinds of things. Um, I don't know if you would want to call that copying because I mean that's really what you should be doing, you know, looking to what what works, right? But um, in terms of privatization of education, to see if you know uh, these are examples that are taken from elsewhere, so that we can um, move our education system forward. Um, maybe, probably, but I, I wouldn't be able to definitively say because you know, again. The, the at least coming out from our findings, um, one of the things that appears to be hidden really is um, the state's understanding of what they're doing when they, they approach, you know, maybe the IMF or whatever supranational organization. Um, a lot of what they do with respect to making decisions um, pertaining to education, a lot of it is not made as transparent to the public, I would say. Um, Yes, you would hear the outcomes and the decisions, but what led to those decisions, um, I feel um, can be made more transparent, you know? So that's why I would say that I'm not too sure about about that. You use Jamaica as an example of a country that's come straight out and said that education, public education is unaffordable. How do people react to that, to that line, to that statement in a place like that? 
um, to come out and just blatantly say that we can't afford to pay for it, so we're not going to. Yet you do have parents looking for the best options for their children. That's it, such a wedge issue to drive inequity. Um, and you talk about transparency. An example like Jamaica, do you take that um, on the surface? Is It's unaffordable, we can't pay for it. Or are people looking at that and questioning, is that actually true? Shouldn't, should we not be seeking other areas to invest more in education? I feel like we are actively seeking ways to um, invest more into education. Um, and it may be a redeployment of those funds as well that needs to be considered. Uh, and I think governments in the Caribbean are really trying to do that. They're, they're, I think their heart is in the right place in terms of recognizing that um, investing in, in, you, in your people is what is going to drive even the economic development of the, the nations within the region. And so I, I think they are looking for ways, right, um, on the ground where people are concerned in terms of, you know, well, I can't afford uh, and and. So I, I have to be relegated to, you know, sending my child to a school that I'd prefer not send, but, you know, I can't afford. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it, it again comes down to choice as well. Um, some may make the sacrifices if they're able to. Others, you know, if you can't afford, you just can't afford, unfortunately. And so you hope for the best. It's, it's not a case of... Um, there's also this, it's just not hard and fast as well, because there are children who go to the schools that others may not prefer send their children to, and these children would still perform well, you know? I just want to ask you, in, in September, leaders from around the world are going to be gathering in New, New York for the Transforming Education Summit. Now, I know you haven't done a lot of work on this topic, but the idea that education is under the spotlight in looking at the challenges facing public education around the world, your report came out in February, and it opens the door to more work. When you see something like this taking place in September on such a large global stage, what do you think those leaders need to be looking at in terms of the Caribbean region moving forward? What do they need to look for? Now, first of all, it's really exciting that they are and <laughs> really important that they should be because um, one thing that the pandemic has certainly highlighted is the high levels of inequity across um, education, across nation states um, in terms of providing education to children, right? And, and um, access to education, how inequitable this has been, right? Um, so I think it's a really, really exciting initiative um, and certainly needed, yeah? What should they be looking at? Certainly looking at um, how they can, in fact, um, inform a more equitable distribution of funds across nation states, yeah? Um, you know, we, we, we think about things like the GDP and, and we, we consider the percentage of the allocation going towards education. Um, maybe there might be discussions on that and can they should have discussions about that um, in terms of percentage allocation. Um, but it can't be, I think, generalized because of the different specific um, contextual situations that nations face. But certainly that was something that they would need to consider. Uh, they would also need to consider um, teachers' unions and what part they have to play 
in this, you know, and, and certainly if there is an opportunity to involve them in, in the conversation towards um, understanding how we can reduce the effects of education privatization, I think that should be encouraged as well. Yeah. But um, another thing I would say is they need to also consider how can we regulate the interventions of private sector involvement in public education. Yeah, maybe um, tax their profits. I don't know, <laughs> something to that effect. And then inject it into public education. Yeah. You just touched upon something that we, we haven't discussed yet, and maybe just very quickly I'll go there, is the pandemic itself. And you made the great point that the pandemic revealed the cracks, the fissures in our social systems, and uh, education was definitely highlighted during, during this period. Have you seen an acceleration of privatization as a result of the pandemic, or somewhat the opposite, that now it's revealed where those cracks are and an awareness of the cracks that need to be addressed and filled moving forward? I feel both are happening. I really feel both are happening. Um, some of the cracks have gotten wider. And, you know, so there are children, even though many countries have now gone back to in-person school, many children have not returned, <laughs> you know, so... And that's really, really disturbing because then, you know, in the long term, we're going to see the effects of that, of more and more children out having been, you know, educated, unschooled, you know, um, and what effects that may have in terms of, let's say, um, at-risk behaviors, you know, increasing crime and those kinds of things. Who knows, right? Um, and so governments will certainly need to do something in order to recapture and, 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 and do something to reduce such impact, Yeah. But um, in terms of the acceleration of privatization coming out from the pandemic, there is something that is known as um, privatization by catastrophe. And we can I agree that the pandemic certainly was a catastrophe, right? And so you'd find that coming out of that, coming the, the fact that nations would have had to expend um, funds, so much of money into something that they did not expect, that that means um, a reduction in funds that is available for other things that we would normally have to, to contribute to. Yeah, and so um, governments would be looking for ways to maybe adopt neoliberal practices, which is to reduce their financing of certain um, public provisions such as within education. Yeah, so a reduction in let's say the number of public scholarships that you offer, you know, things like that. Um, so that they can, you know, kind of restabilize themselves as, as government states. Um, and so, yeah, privatization may increase there because now we'd be looking for the assistance of private entities. So, you know, your report has opened the door, like I said, to even more research that's needed. And even though we can look towards September and look at world leaders, looking at education, I don't think we can depend on those world leaders to, to set the right course on their own. Closer to home, we have our teachers unions. I'm just wondering, because you talked about it in the report, if you could talk about what measures unions, teacher unions can take at this point in your region, and maybe what your partners around the world can do to help move and advance this work, advance this discussion, and uh, to do something about the increasing privatization in the Caribbean region. Okay, so um, 
in terms of the teachers unions, teachers unions certainly need to become more aware, become more educated on privatization of education, public education, um, and um, really get to understand, you know, and, and make sure that this awareness is widespread across their members, yeah, so teachers and principals and so on, so that they understand the effects of privatization of education um, on themselves in terms of their own um, conditions of work, uh, how it may affect, let's say, something being introduced such as uh, performance-related pay, those kinds of things, so that teachers understand how privatization of education affects them, as well as how it affects the education system in that um, not leaning towards uh, or contributing, as some of them already are, contributing to an increase in inequitable access to education for students, you know, making education not a public good that all students should benefit from, um, but then leaning it to, towards, you know, that, that, that idea of students um, being segregated, I think, um, being considered as assets as, com as compared to liabilities when you, 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 you split education in such a way, you know? So yeah, I, I'm... I don't know if I've, I've completely answered that question. <laughs> Are you optimistic? Moving Am I optimistic? I'm always, I'm always optimistic. I, I think um, research work is, is something that the Caribbean is really starting to appreciate more and more and using research findings towards informing their, their, their decisions, that is on the increase. And so I am optimistic. Um, the Caribbean region is seeking out, um, you know, understandings uh, and, and evidence-based understandings, evidence-based solutions towards the, the, the endemic problems that they face. And so I, I, am, I am optimistic. Yeah. Over now, on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining me and happy to end on an optimistic note. And I look forward to the next report when it comes out. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was right, a pleasure. To get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Ed Voices on your favorite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. And as always, tell a friend, spread the word, and please give us a review on iTunes.